Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Philippians, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2. Almost forgot we've been studying Ephesians for 13 weeks in a row. Ephesians chapter 2, text this morning, just one verse, that is verse 10, but I want to read the first 10 verses of chapter 2 for context. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. The title of the message this morning is God's Love Poem. The title is taken from a Greek word found here in verse 10 that the English translators have replaced with the word workmanship. If you were to go and buy some handcrafted furniture, the salesperson may draw your attention to the workmanship. And you know what he would mean by that. He means the precision and the detail that makes this a quality product. Well, the Apostle Paul says that we Christians are God's workmanship. The Greek word is poema, where we get the English word poem. A poem is a piece of literary workmanship. The poet uses words as his his raw materials rather than wood or stone. God's raw materials are believers, referred to in the New Testament and the Old Testament as clay. God is the master potter. We are the clay, and he's making us into what he wants to make. This morning, I want to draw your attention to three points as it relates to God's love poem. First of all, God's people. Secondly, God's purpose. And finally, God's plan. First of all, God's people. We are his workmanship. Now, there is a sense in which all of creation displays God's glory. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of this world, his divine attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. He's speaking there of nature. Paul is saying a person in any part of the world, no matter how isolated, can look at the stars at night. He can look at and hold his newborn baby and understand that someone greater than himself exists. That God's eternal power and his divine nature are on display. Now, for many years, we were limited to understanding God's power through nature by what we can see with the naked eye or hear with our own ear or feel with our own fingers. But today, through the advancements of science, we have things like telescopes and microscopes, and to a new degree, to a new level, 
we're able to understand the glory of God through creation. But he says it's not only God's power that's on display in creation, it's also some of his attributes, that is his divine nature. Now what does he mean that God's divine nature is on display in nature? Well, I take from that the fact that God is faithful and that he is a provider. It's not as if God created the universe, wound it up like a, ch a child's toy and walked away disinterested. Acts chapter 14, verse 16, Paul says this, speaking of God's relationship with his creation. He said, in the generations gone by, he, God, permitted all the nations to go their own way. And yet he did not leave them without witness in that he did good and gave them rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with, with food and gladness. You can go anywhere on planet earth and you'll find people enjoying their children. You'll find them enjoying the cuisine of their own culture. You'll find them planting and harvesting crops in their seasons. And it's evidence of the fact that God is the divine superintendent. He creates and he provides. Now, theologians speak of this of God's common grace. It's common not in the sense that it's not of value. It's common in the sense that it's common to everyone. By virtue of being a human being, you receive this kind of grace from God, these everyday blessings of life. But in Ephesians chapter two, Paul is not referring to common grace when he says we are God's workmanship. He's referring to rather the very special kind of grace that is reserved for all of those who would put their faith in his son Jesus. So when Paul uses the plural pronoun we, and he says we are God's workmanship, he's not speaking of all humanity. He's speaking specifically of believers. Now I said many weeks ago when we started this series that if you struggle as a Christian with a negative self-image or even depression, if you look around the landscape of the culture and you want to go hide because of the trajectory that we're on as a nation, this study in Ephesians is just what the doctor ordered for you. Because Paul is saying about you as a Christian that you are God's masterpiece. That's what the word really means. You are a love poem of his sovereign grace to the rest of the world. Well, you might say, Pastor, look, I don't feel like a masterpiece. I don't feel like a poem. I don't feel like a work of art of any kind. I feel like a cold, wet lump of clay most of the time. Because I still struggle with lust and anger and sin of all kind. How can I say that I'm God's masterpiece? Well, you're right, of course. All of us are in process. You and I are not finished products yet. But our steadfast hope and our faith is that one day our practice will coincide with our position. You remember that our position is in Christ. But as long as we live in these bodies of flesh, we're going to struggle with sin. And yet our confidence that one day we're going to be brought to a state of perfection is not in our ability to gain perfection. It's in God's ability to keep his promise. That's why Paul said to another church, the church at Philippi in Philippians 1.6, speaking to Christians, he said, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it to the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's confidence was not in any believers, let alone himself, was not in any believer's ability to remain faithful unto the end. It was confidence in God's faithfulness to do everything that he promised. 
You remember in the previous two verses, verses eight and nine, let's just look at those here in chapter two. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. In those two verses, he's saying, we did not bring about our own salvation. We received it as a gift of God. And he says, God is the one who initiated it. It was God, he says in chapter one, that chose you before the foundation of the world. It was God who predestined you to be adopted into his family. And so what he's saying is what God started, God will bring to completion. He says at the day of the Lord Jesus. Now what day is that? I take it to be the day of our glorification. It's when Jesus returns or he calls us home. What then is the role of good works? We all have been taught we should produce fruit. We know as believers we should do good works. So what is the purpose? What is the role of good works in the life of a believer? Well, I am thrilled that you asked such an appropriate question because that happens to be our next point, God's purpose for good works. Now here, pay attention, is the cutting edge. Here is the cutting edge between biblical Christianity and every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world is an attempt to earn salvation through good works. Whether it's Buddhism, or Shintoism, or any other ism, it's just the same thing by another name. It's an attempt to earn salvation through good works. And the other side of the edge is biblical salvation. Biblical salvation is a gift of God through his dear son that always results in good works. In fact, this was his intent in saving us, he says, that we should bring forth fruitfulness. He says we were created, and I take that to mean spiritual life was given to us. We were saved unto Christ for good works. Now what does he mean by that? Well, go back in your mind to the book of Genesis. And you recall the six days of creation. God created everything that he created, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets. He created dry land. He created the seas. He created the animals to inhabit them. And on day six, he created his highest creature, man. In fact, he took from the side of Adam and made him a helpmate named Eve. And when he had done this, he gave this couple a command. And I'm not speaking about the prohibition not to eat of the tree that was in the midst of the garden. He gave them a positive commandment. He said, go forth and what? Multiply, be productive, be creative. The reason he wanted them to do that is because it would give him glory. Now, take that to the spiritual realm. The reason God has regenerated you, the reason he has given you spiritual life is so that you could go forth and multiply, produce fruit that would bring him glory. This is what John the Baptist said in his day as he baptized those that were coming out to him in the wilderness. They were confessing their sins and then he says go and bring forth fruit, meet with repentance. That is it's not just the verbalization of your confession and contrition. It's going out and living it out. I take it fruits meet with repentance means commiserate with who you now are. So why should we do good works? Very simple reason, because it glorifies God. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He also said that this 
And this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So fruit, or good works, are always the evidence that a person is genuinely born again. You say, wait a second. I know lots of people who aren't saved, don't claim to be a Christian, or they're in some false sect of Christianity that are good neighbors. They do good deeds. They visit the sick. They do. But those aren't not deeds that will earn salvation. People do good deeds for all sorts of reasons. What he's saying here is that when you are genuinely born again, the natural result is that you are going to bring forth deeds and attitudes and actions that by their nature glorify God. I think I've told you before the story of my son Andrew, who's now four. A couple of years ago, about this time of year, we were planting our spring vegetable garden and I had laid out all my seeds in envelopes marked clearly. I had a strategy and a little graphing paper where I'd said, here's where we're gonna plant everything. And he had other plants for that. Um, I wasn't aware that he had mixed all the seeds together and went out and spread them out where he wanted them. The problem was not that uh, the seeds weren't planted, they were, and it was hard to undo that. So we just left them, and it was uh, great fun for all of us to see what plants came up. <laughs> but I was under no illusion that a stalk of corn was going to come up where Andrew planted a tomato. We knew what he had planted by what came up, right? And so when we produce fruit, it's evidence of what is within us. When we are abiding in Christ, we bring forth fruit commiserate with who Christ is. Love and joy and peace and long-suffering and all of those things. Some would object at this point and say, well, what about the book of James? Doesn't James, the brother of Jesus, tell us that salvation is by works? Doesn't James say that faith without works is dead? James did say that. But James taught the same gospel of salvation by grace through faith that, that Paul did. A lot of people like to place James and Paul at polar opposites of the church. Or else they like to see them duking it out or, or, or they're fighting with swords against one another. Paul and James both were swordsmen, but their sword was the word of God, right? And they weren't dueling each other. They were fighting back to back, but against two different kinds of opponents, for a good portion of his ministry, Paul was dueling against legalists because he used to be one. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees tended to be legalistic. They thought by the meticulous keeping of the law that they could win God's love and therefore salvation. And so he dealt with people like the Judaizers who said, well, it's all well and good to worship this Jesus, but to that you've got to add circumcision. And to that you've got to add tithing. And to that you've got to add this custom or that. And Paul rejected that and so he was quick to say, no, salvation is by grace through faith alone. On the other hand, James is battling a group of people who were given to licentiousness, to what we call antinomianism, which was against the law. They said the law is of no effect. We can live any way we want to, live it up, sin as much as we want and still call ourselves Christians. And, and so here's James saying, no, if you're genuinely saved, you're going to bring forth fruit. And Paul is saying, but you don't work and bring forth fruit in an attempt to be saved. You bring forth fruit because you are saved. There's a very big difference there. 
The Bible is crystal clear, dear ones, that our works add nothing to procure, to bring about our salvation, but our works give evidence that our salvation is genuine. Thirdly and finally, Paul is quick to point out that God gets the glory even from our good works. Now this seems to be a paradox. A paradox, two facts that seem to be in contradiction but are not. They seem to be in contradiction but are not. How can, on one hand, we be commanded to work, produce works, on the other hand, God gets the glory through those good works. I know that many of you have been working hard this year to memorize scripture, and I congratulate you on that. You will never regret memorizing scripture. And I appreciate Brother Jack Gatewood's emphasis in leading us to be more intentional here at First Baptist Keller about scripture memory. And one of the passages that he's leading us to memorize this year is Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. If you'll just turn two or three pages over towards Revelation, you'll come to the very next book of the Bible, which is the book of Philippians. Remember, Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, God prepared these works beforehand that we should walk in them. Philippians 2.12 and 13 are really a commentary of that verse. And this is what Paul says in Philippians 2.12. He says, so then, my beloved, which tells me he's writing to Christians, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's that paradox. In verse 12, he says, you go work out your salvation. And verse 13 says, God's the one doing work. Now, how does that, that work out? Well, to work out your salvation speaks of our responsibility in sanctification. Now, when it comes to being saved, our justification, we can't work enough for that. That's a gift from God. But now that we are saved, our sanctification is the process in which we are being separated from sin. We do have a role in that. That is, it takes effort to grow in sanctification. Now, what are some of the things that we are commanded to do that lead to our sanctification? How about studying the Bible, right? Study to show yourself an approved workman. So, God doesn't pour the New Testament scriptures into your brain he doesn't do it through osmosis while you sleep. You have to do the hard work of study. Prayer can be a labor, a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. Fellowship with other Christians. We have to make the effort to be here early on a Sunday morning to enjoy fellowship and be taught the word. So all of these things we do that help to bring about our sanctification, but Paul says in the end, God is the one who gets the glory. So work out your salvation. Let's look at it like this. Let's say that uh, you go home and get a telegram. Do they still have telegrams? <laughs> I've never received one, but let's say you got a letter or an email that uh, you have been named the beneficiary of an estate. Some lost, long lost uncle has passed away and left you 500 acres of prime farmland in the Arkansas River bottom. Now you can go and you can take pictures of that land and you can admire it from afar, but for you to get the value that's in that land, you have to work the land, right? 
You have to plow up the soil, you have to row it up, you have to plant the seed, you have to water it, you have to fertilize it, and then after many months of labor, you can reap the results and you'll work out that land. Or, if you're not a farmer, maybe you inherit a, a mountain in Colorado and you've been told by the Corps of Engineers that there's $50 million worth of gold in this mountain, but it's up to you to go and mine that gold. Well, th these are similar things we see. And for, for example, in Isaiah chapter five, God described his relationship with Israel, that he called them and chose them out of all the nations of the world. And he gave them a choice piece of land, literally. It's the best land around. And then he gave them choice vines, that is the best plants to go in. And he told them to plant this vineyard. And then he gave them a tower in the middle of that land so that they could watch out for their enemies from afar. Then he hedged the land about, protecting them from invaders. And then he gave them a command. He said, produce good grapes. Produce fruit. Go forth and multiply. Does that sound familiar? But he says, instead, they produced in the Hebrew language, bu'ushin, these little dried up huckleberries that were good for nothing. And that's why God's judgment came upon them. And it, here we fast forward to the New Testament. God has saved us. He's called us out. And he gives us a similar commandment. He says, work out your salvation. Produce good fruit. But then he says in verse 13 for balance, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now in what sense is God at work in us? It's through his indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We teach and believe here that at the moment of conversion, every Christian is given the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit as a gift to lead us, to comfort us, to help us understand the scripture, to guide us in our decision making. And so that's what he means when he says God is at work in us. But he's in us working to bring about two things. One, he says, to will. See, when we're lost, when we're dead in trespasses and sins, we don't even have the will to obey God. Would you agree with that? Just, even if we had the will, we didn't have the ability, but we don't even have the will. And so the first thing the Holy Spirit does at conversion, he gives us the desire to, be, to obey God and be fruitful so that we can glorify him. Did you notice when you were saved, the new direction God gave your life? How things that once had seemed unimportant now became the most important things in your life? And you wanted to tell others about Jesus and you, you couldn't wait to get your hands on a Bible and you couldn't wait to go to church because you wanted to, to grow, you, you were hungry. The Lord had changed you. He had given you this will to obey him. But then he says, it's not just that he gives you the will to obey him, he gives you the ability to obey him. That's when he says, to work. That is, he energizes us with the ability, with the ability to obey him and therefore bring him glory. Now, why does he do that? Look at the end of verse 13 here in Philippians 2. For his good, what? Pleasure. Now that's saying a mouthful. John MacArthur says this. God wants the church to do what satisfies him. God wants the church to do what satisfies him. I'm convinced you and I live in the midst of the most narcissistic culture that ever was. I don't have any way of quantifying that. I've only lived in one culture 
As I study history and I see the trajectory of our country, I'm amazed at the obsession that most people in our culture have with themselves. Me, mine, getting, holding on to, pushing their name forward, look at me. And yet biblical Christianity is something very different. Biblical Christianity is laying aside narcissism. It's coming to God on God's terms with empty pockets and upturned hands and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And it's having God replace that desire for self-gratification with the desire to bring him glory. And so when MacArthur says the church's business is to do those things which satisfy God, I have to tell you, that is my prayer and has been for many years for First Baptist Church of Keller, and it's my prayer for our future. Look, let me let you in on a little secret. I and the rest of the staff, we don't have some crystal ball to tell the future. I don't view myself as some visionary leading us into the foggy night. I don't have some grand plan projecting 20 years out. I simply want all of you and all of us to be faithful every day to do those things that give God glory. What are those things? We're not left in the dark about that. Scripture says it uh, glorifies God to see brothers walk in unity and peace. In fact, he says they will know you by your love one for another. I know that God is pleased with a church that loves one another, that walks in unity. Now that unity has to be based on truth. And so God is glorified when a church has a high view of truth in scripture. And so as we walk in unity and peace, it's around the word of God. And in that word of God, we find something else that glorifies God and that is evangelism. The Bible says every time a lost soul is saved, there is rejoicing in heaven. It gives glory and praise and joy to the heart of God when God's people share the good news of Jesus. Not only at home, but through missions. When we go out of our cultural context and leave the comforts of hearth and home to fulfill the Great Commission. I believe that God is satisfied, glorified when His people are generous with their money. They're not hoarding it. They're not meeting it out like a miser. They're lavishing it upon those who are in need and to the Lord's work. They're not pursuing the same things their neighbors are. They're not motivated by treasure. They're not motivated by toys. They're not motivated by early retirement. And here's something I absolutely know is something that the Lord takes satisfaction in is that is the worship and praise of his people. The Bible says that he inhabits the praise of his people. That is something that he's attracted to, that he's drawn to, that gives him satisfaction is when his people praise him because he is worthy of praise. And if you wonder what should be the motivation for you singing God's praises with earnest, it's because it brings him glory. Not because you have the prettiest voice. Not, not because you know every word by heart, it's because he's worthy. These are the works of the church that Paul says that God has predestined that the church walks in. That is, it's our everyday course of action. 
It's not something we do periodically. It's not something we do occasionally. It is the air that we breathe. Unity, peace, love, truth, evangelism, missions, generosity, and worship. And our task is to be about the Father's business. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this verse, one little verse that says so much. Father, it tells us that um, we are your love poem. And Father, I confess I'm, I don't always feel that way because I still struggle with sin as well every day. And many days, Lord, I, I feel like I'm not making much progress. But my confidence is not in my ability to make progress. My confidence that one day you'll bring me to perfection is in your promise. Paul says in Philippians that he who began a good work in you will complete it. We believe that, Lord. Lord, I thank you for the progress that I've seen in so many lives in this church. I pray, Lord, that it would continue. I pray that you'd add others through evangelism and salvation who would start down that path of sanctification. And Father, it makes us long for heaven and home where we'll be free one day not only from the penalty and the power of sin, but the very presence of sin. And so we say with Christians for all the ages, Lord Jesus, come. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.